This podcast was recorded pre-lockdown. I wanted to share these episodes with you as they are still great conversations with great people about great times that will come back again. Hi, and welcome to Series 2 of the Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast. Every week we will talk to the great, the good and the legendary from the worlds of food, drink, marketing and business to help give you the advice that will really help your brand boom. A huge thanks to our headline sponsors, the award-winning Engage Interactive, who've been helping hospitality businesses like yours prepare for a mobile and digital-first world since 2007. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. So woke up in Soho, really excited, not in an alleyway, uh, but in my hotel room, and really glad to just pop out onto Poland Street and then saunter down to Soho Radio, where I've got the whole day booked for three recording sessions. Really excited about the guests we've got coming up, really trying to keep it A-list, and this morning's session I don't think will let you down. I had Mark Palmer on, so if you don't know Mark, Mark actually replaced me or superseded me at Pret, and he was also my brand consultant at Pret. He's just a wonderful human being, such a quiet man, quiet, considered, polite, but boy is he dangerous in terms of marketing strategy and executing brands brilliantly. Mark had an amazing career so far. From United Biscuits to KP Snacks to BK Burger King, Green and Blacks, Pret. And at the moment, he's working on Coston Press, which he's a co-founder of LA Brewery, which is a kombucha brand, which you can find in Leon and Wagamama. And also Chairing Union Coffee, which is just the most caring and incredible coffee brand, really, that's out there. They're just a really impressive act. I don't know if there's too much more for me to say. We had an hour before the podcast as well. Really wish we'd recorded that too. Lots of great tips there. But I'll let Mark do the talking. It's a real masterclass for anyone wanting to know how to do branding and marketing properly. And also some of the lessons that you can learn from FMCG marketing and brand management that you could use every single day in your current role. So it gives me the most marketing god pleasure ever to introduce my next guest, who is the amazing, good friend and ex-colleague and marketing genius, Mr. Mark Palmer. Thank you, Mark. Good to see you. Hello. <laughs> you right? Very well, mate. Very well. Good. It's been a long time. We always threaten to have a beer before Santa comes. We never do, <laughs> but we maybe have the odd phone call and email and things like that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so what's happening with you? What's going on in the world of Mark Palmer? So life after Pret is, um, I guess, more back into the consumer packaged goods world. Mm -hmm. So I am spending a lot of time on um, my soft drinks business, um, where I'm one of the founders of Causton Press mm -hmm. Soft Drinks. So that's my main activity. Also in a similar space, uh, I founded, together with two colleagues, LA Brewery, which is a kombucha business, uh, non-alcoholic drink. So we're busy getting that one out of the blocks. Mm -hmm. And in my spare time, fortunate enough to uh, be asked to be the, the chairman of Union Coffee, where I've been a, an investor and, and non-exec for nearly 10 years now. So I've stepped up my involvement with Jeremy, Stephen, Violetta, Kurtu and the team there. And that's, uh, you know, it's a great honour to be involved with that one. Great. I mean, there's a podcast in every single one of those alone, never mind all of that put together. So we will definitely talk about all those businesses because there's interesting stories about how they all happened. If we go back, though, um, you know, in terms of you being, you know, the marketer that you are and the business leader that you are, what happened? How did it all kind of start out? So sort of post-school, was it university or what happened? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I grew up in, in Wolverhampton. Which is um, I forgot yeah, about that. A, pr a proud Wolverhampton boy oh, and, and Wolves fan. So I grew up um, in Wolverhampton. My family had a, a retail business, a menswear business. So I guess you know, very early on, I was used to hearing about the the weekly sales at the shop or the, or the shops as they were. 
at the time. Um, what was, was it called? Uh, it was called Albert Williams, which is my grandfather's name. He was a really? tailor, and it was a formal menswear business, uh, selling suits in the day that, days that everybody wore suits to work, and black tie and wedding gear for special occasions. So retail was, had always been there, and I guess through that I gained an, an appreciation of brands. Um, in the in the menswear trade and fashion trade, brands are um, you know very important. And so I had an early love for retail and brands. Mm. Went off to uh, university, to Bath University or Bath as it's commonly known. No, it's Bath. Um, it's Bath. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. And um, spent four very happy years there doing a business degree. And as part of that, um, had a, a placement year with uh, United Biscuits, uh, mm-hmm. KP Snacks. It was a sandwich placement course. Sandwich is a reoccurring theme in my in my life. But at the time, uh, sandwich placement looked like uh, a secondment to learn the marketing ropes, working on brands like Hula Hoops and Brannigans and McCoys. Discos. Discos, salt and vinegar discos, fine fine products. And, prawn um, cocktail discos, not so much. Uh, prawn cocktail skips, not discos. No, really. you get prawn cocktail discos now, but they taste... Not good. Not as good as the, not as good as the salt and vinegar. No, not something. Like Double strength salt and vinegar back in the day. Um, <laughs> so the first brands I was given as a as a sort of grad trainee, I guess, were um, Space Raiders, pickled onion Space Raiders, to write yeah. the back of pack cartoons on a Space Raiders pack. You you had to write those. Well, in the absence of a budget or an agency, even for a grand company like that, oh it was very much God. a um, a small secondary brand that didn't attract a budget and an agency. So as the marketing grad. Part of your role was to write the back of pack copy for. Was that not a really proud Raiders. moment? That was a fantastic moment, and uh, <laughs> al- al- almost almost as proud as being in charge of Choc Dips, which was again ahead of its time in mobile snacking solutions. There was an issue with Choc Dips, right? There was a ratio deficit. Never enough chocolate. Yeah. Well, you know, you, over time you perfect the art of eating a Choc Dip <laughs> pack. But um, so K- so KP was, I guess, my first foray into into marketing. Uh, did a placement there loved it uh they liked me enough to ask me to rejoin after i completed my degree so I, I joined in 93 i think as a as a full-time marketing graduate and i was extremely lucky to work with uh, a very talented team there and uh my boss was a guy called nick canning who went on to be marketing director of the sun and news of the world and kp snacks who's the marketing director there and more recently has been the md of iceland the supermarket so oh. Great guy, and he taught me, I guess, uh, some of the early skills around brand management. So I felt very fortunate, to be honest, to be a, a young trainee with some sort of rock stars yeah, yeah. around, and there were people that you could really learn from. Just going back, though, when you said you learnt some things about brand management, what did you learn? What's in your head about that? Well, it's, it is different to the hospitality world. I think it's drummed into you at a very early age in FMCG that you, your role as a brand manager or assistant brand manager, as it, as it was back then, um, is to really behave like the managing director of your of your brand. And you have access to all areas and you get a terrific opportunity to try and influence all the different points that matter to the customer. So you're in very much um, P&L accountable. So you're, you're interested in the sales of your brand, the margins of the product, the cost of goods, you are responsible for spending a marketing budget, whether that's on trial driving promotions in supermarkets or whether it's on you know more above the line or mm. classic marketing. You get to deal with uh, the factories that produce your brand, so and that's always a you know a good early lesson in humility and um, ha- being being careful that your marketing plans aren't screwing up operations. Yep. It's very much true, as true in, in FMCG as it is in hospitality. Um, you get to work with. Uh, well, I got to work with a number of great agencies as well very early on in my career. So whilst you're not perhaps providing all the creative uh, inputs yourself, you get to work, work and try and um, you know get the best work out of people that are extremely talented yeah. at that. So early on, I was involved with, uh, we made a ad campaign for Hula Hoops with Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse. Oh, yeah. That was a fantastic moment just a couple of years into my career. We were doing on-pack promotions. We got front page of the sun when someone found a hula hoop without a hole, went £100,000 in the glory days of sales promotion. And it, KP, really, it really was a terrific place to, um, you know, to, to learn the ropes and uh, forever be grateful of the opportunity I, I was given there. We'll definitely come on to which is better, uh, you know, in terms of 
your dual life that you've had, which is yeah. FMCG. Trying and to do a bit of both these days and hospitality. spread that. Um, but yeah, let's talk about that in a bit. So, oh, and McCoy's. McCoy's, the, the real McCoy's. The real the McCoy's. Real, is is the that big, a the, Sunday the, name? The big chip from the big country, as it was <laughs> known back then. Made, it, made in Teesside. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, the factory up there near Middlesbrough was where, uh, where McCoy's was born. The Yorkies of crisps. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> great crisps. And in fact, one of our big rivals at the time was, was Martin Glenn, who was the marketing director of Walker's, who was responsible for bringing Gary Lineker in to Walker's. And, yes. you know, he's since gone on to be chief executive of various things, including the FA. And um, oh. But at the time, he always said to me, he's also a Wolves fan, which is how we actually met, but... He always used to say to me, McCoy's is the one brand we can't touch because it's just such a, it's just the ultimate crisp. It's the, the best product on the market. And he was, yep. he was absolutely right about that. <laughs> so I'm going to go again. Indeed. Nice. So then what happened after that then? Uh, so after that was my first, I think it was the, the, the family business calling, not calling me back, but the retail calling came back. So I decided I wanted to combine brand management but but with retail mm-hmm. and I thought the best place to do that was um, fast food so I joined Burger King so it was a move out of FMCG into retail but with many familiar things like you know a 25 million pounds a year I think ad budget we were making different TV ads every week promoting the latest specials and and promos Burger King uh, at the time was primarily operated by franchisees rather than company owned sites so mm-hmm. I got to have my first taste of um, managing a franchised network and how you get um, system alignment and participation, which was challenging. And franchisees that had their own family money in these restaurants um, that were extremely committed but very emotional about how you spent their their funds on marketing uh, were really concerned about how much cash they'd taken that afternoon and lunchtime rather than whether your Millwood Brown brand equity scores were ticking up nicely. So it was a very much a a branded environment, but with a real tough business um, and commercial strand to Mm. it too. And I I love that combination. And I think actually brands and numbers um, is my sweet spot, really. I I like the two together. I think marketing's often unfairly siloed as a creative only function that isn't commercial Mm. and i've always tried to i guess seek out opportunities where marketing can be at the at the top table and absolutely be pnl responsible as as well as hopefully um bringing some creative flair to brands and just when you look at the creative process you know it'd be fascinating to almost run through that you know what was leading up to the tv ad you know step by step because I think in food and drink and hospitality so many people will go through their entire career and never have done TV or video advertising in any way shape or form so how did that work you know to then get in the end ad out what's what's a sort of I think the important thing is that um, you know a brand has a a clear long-term positioning that sits above any tactical advertising or latest products Mm -hmm. or shiny and new news that may come along so a brand has to stand for something be clearly positioned ideally have a you know a consistent long-term visual identity what was burger kings can you remember well burger kings was was really rooted in flame grilling flame grilled, which yeah. clearly does taste better than the fried alternatives but um it was flame grilling and it was the hero product was the whopper yeah. the whopper was very much where burger king led everywhere of course apart from scotland where um I think it's the only Burger King market in the world where the Whopper is not the top-selling menu item. <laughs> We've had um, this conversation. <laughs> bacon, double cheeseburger, and chicken royale, I think, both outsell, outsell chicken? that. Chicken? I didn't know that Fried one. Fried chicken royale, yeah, absolutely. And um, in my brief time running Burger King Scotland, the, the Masala Burger, which was a 99-piece special. Wow. With a local TV advertising campaign, which rocketed to the top of the charts for three weeks. At <laughs> but, but, did you, but did you not see... If sales were down in Scotland, you stuck a rodeo burger on or something. What happened there? <laughs> the rodeo burger, yeah, um, with onion rings. Yeah. A classic, <laughs> Scottish classic. Um, and a lot of barbecue sauce. The yeah. um, there's always, Burger King was quite a tactical business. It, it operated a, a, a regular programme of sales promotion, mm-hmm. and there was a need for marketing communications to get across those offers to the consumer. I think it just needs to sit underneath an, an umbrella idea, really, um, you're in real trouble if you let the promotional calendar become the marketing strategy. This you, is a lesson for everyone listening, right? 
you know, there's not enough discipline in holding strong to your idea in most restaurant businesses. You I think know? that's true. I think I think if your if your idea is the promotion, it's it's a world of it's a world of difficulty. You've got to have a bigger brand idea, and then you can you can flex that idea to communicate uh, tactical offers, new launches, real lofty brand messages. Yeah. Um, but all of it is brand, and there's nothing more frustrating than people saying you do your purest brand work and then you do your tactical offers. The customer doesn't look at it like that. You know, they see it, they all see it as just messaging from a brand, and it's all brand. And James Cuddle, who's the well, no longer the marketing director at Prep, but was the was the fantastic long term marketing director of Prep, always used to say to people, everything is brand. Mm. Whether it's the ticket on the ticket that communicates the food on the shelf to the team member uniforms to a job ad, a hoarding while we're refurbishing the shop, everything is a piece of brand communication. It's the same love and care, mm. and it needs to all be ideally organised under under one system. Um, of course, you can keep it fresh and relevant and go tactical. Mm. And a bit gritty when you need to, but if you're letting the gritty stuff lead everything else, you you lose the brand very quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by BDO, the trusted accountancy and advisory firm. As the finance experts in hospitality, BDO have the experience and the insight to provide solid foundations for your business's future growth. BDO really are the go-to team to help your hospitality business succeed. If you're in need of a dedicated transactional team bolstered with corporate finance, audit and tax services, talk to BDO, who've got the right expertise, knowledge and experience to drive your restaurant or bar's business throughout their full life cycle. As thought leaders across the sector, BDO offers commercial and technical updates specifically tailored to restaurants and bars, including their annual hospitality reports. BDO also have a well-established network in the industry that spans across finance directors, suppliers and advisors, and they are always willing to use this to their clients and their contacts' advantage. Get in touch today at bdo.co.uk to chat about how they can help take your hospitality business to the top. And please say that I sent you. Just just thinking about the, the, the practicalities of like TV ads and things like that, because again, most marketers in hospitality just don't get anywhere near that. You know, they're not even doing Facebook advertising for God's sake, right? So, you know, what happened there? You know, the, the casting, the the agency, the tissue meetings. You well, know, well, I mean, it's, it's easier if you don't. Exciting. It's easier if you don't have any people or um, or characters in the ads. I mean, Burger King was a very food led. Yeah. So we had lots of flames, mm-hmm. lots of burgers, some fantastic soundtracks, and um, and obviously there was cost involved in doing all of that. But generally, there was a formula that we could you know evolve through the calendar and and the news. Um, I've certainly worked on brands that have had sort of bigger budget um, productions, if you like, set piece mm. advertising, and it, and it takes a long time to get to get that right. And it, it starts with a brief, and then a whole raft of creative ideas. Uh, you settle on a script, and then you get into casting. Then you actually shoot the ads. It's an extremely nerve wracking few days until you wait to see the first cut of what it might look like, and then you overlay the sound and the um the the voiceover if there is one um sharpen it all up and and hope that it's as good as you hoped but it's um it's an expensive game yeah. and it's uh it's capable of looking pretty different at the end of the process versus the original idea and i think if you if your idea is dependent on casting you again it's probably not a great idea uh, yeah. so casting should tip it from excellent to really fantastic yeah, rather yeah. than um determine whether the whole advertising idea is any good and was there any times when you saw stuff back and it was done that your heart sank? Uh, yeah, quite a few, quite a few times. And you know, there are. I think one of the good, one of the disciplines you have to have in marketing is um, knowing when to stop and say no to a piece of work going mm-hmm. out, just because you've committed to do it and you may have already incurred certain cost. It's more damaging to the brand to put it out sometimes, yeah. and the world actually doesn't fall apart if you don't put something out. There's, there's other things you've probably got in the archives that you can fall back on that are that are more solid and. Sometimes out of ego or pride, you know, marketers and particularly agencies will push you to get the latest thing out. And yeah. if it's not good enough, it's not good enough and you're best not to run it at all. And is that a difficult conversation back at base? Uh, it's difficult, but actually I always think that the job of the marketer is to not just push the new, but it's to guard the 
guard the brands you've been entrusted to look after and mm. um sometimes doing nothing or going back to you know house style and tried and trusted um comms is, is not a bad place to be or even have a period god forbid of no marketing at all i mean yeah the marketing industry would like us to believe that the world falls apart if we haven't got the latest campaign out all the time but the numbers often suggest that's not true yeah what about what burger king's doing right now so i'm thinking you've probably seen a lot of the american stuff certainly or the worldwide stuff sorry yeah I mean, you know what fernando's doing and stuff looks really good right well the worldwide um particularly the u.s marketing for burger king is is out of the park i think i think it's some of the best marketing not just in this industry but more broadly so they are you know really hot housing great creative work uh, absolutely utilizing all the latest channels um i don't quite see the same swagger in the uk mm. but i think the brand has the capability of doing it, yeah. um, but I think they're they're a little behind there. But um, as a lifetime Burger King fan, and uh, they've got Bridgepoint backing them now, who are our backers at Pratt. So I think mm. I think they'll they'll work it out. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I'd love to try and get Fernando on at some point. I've, I heard him do a CMO podcast, and it was just a masterclass. You know, just what he was saying. It was real big belief in people, and you know, and letting agencies be agencies. You Absolutely, know, not controlling them. he's moved it on beyond my masala burger in Glasgow. So. <laughs> That's for sure. Deep, deep fried heroin burger. Right, so then moving on from Burger King, you went a bit sweet, did you? I did indeed. So I, uh, so next move was to was to downsize. So rather than being a head of marketing at, for a big club, I decided to join a smaller emerging team. And I can't remember how old I was. I think I was nearing 30 at the time. But I, I wanted to be a marketing director, which sounds terrible. But it's a, to, be a marketing no, dire- to be a marketing director of a big company you kind of have to do your time typically for a few more years Mm -hmm. and I was a bit impatient so my solution to getting a business card that said marketing director on it was to um was to was to go somewhere that um had a had a smaller setup and smaller budgets and join the top table of a of a a smaller of a smaller club I guess so I I joined green and blacks the chocolate company turnover was about two and a half million it had been started by husband and wife team um very pioneering early stage ethical and organic brand um the business had recently secured new investment from the previous uh ceo and cfo of the new covent garden soup company they'd um taken a majority stake in the business and were running it from that point forward and they they hired um a number of us so i gave up a 25 million pounds above the line budget at burger king and i think my budget in year one at green and blacks was ninety five thousand pounds wow which took a bit of getting used to, um, particularly after I realised that also included the cost of reception, including the receptionist salary and the Christmas party. What? Which also fell under the marketing budget coding <laughs> in the absence of the finance director being too lazy to create any other oh, course codes. Christ. So it was a, it, all of a sudden it was a different job really. It was not about marketing spend. It was about how do you make sure that w- what you're selling is as sharp as it can possibly be. And let the product and the story of the brand do the talking and try and uh, really sharpen the presentation of the brand and then develop the distribution. And over a five-year period, we took Green and Blacks from you know, two and a half million to 30 million sales, sold the business to Cabbage Schweppes, as they were at the mm. time. Um, I stayed involved for a few years after that, uh, full-time for a year, and then in an advisory role afterwards, uh, helping the business transition into a bigger company. But it, it was a pretty trailblazing, pioneering brand. The chocolate tasted fantastic. Mm organic and fair trade uh Grinbats was actually the it was the world's first first fair trade product not just chocolate but any product to carry the fair trade What's logo really? back in 1994 before coffee cafe direct with a second a couple of things that, you know just to unpack some of that first of all favorite one What's your favourite green and blacks product? No, lo- no longer available sadly it is d- dark chocolate with sour cherry which is um oh. never a top seller uh but although when we when we actually look so that's a good example of looking beneath the data. When you look at the data, not top seller in net sales value, but when you looked at customer loyalty, uh, it was the highest scoring was it? highest scoring bar. So those that were fortunate enough to discover it, it was a lock-in product. I think as part of a bigger business now, it's sort of become victim of being in the tail of SKUs. Yeah. And just around the packaging side of things then, how was that done? Was that designed in-house? Did you work with an agency? We worked with an agency. So... I worked out pretty early on that, I mean, Greenback's chocolate tasted fantastic. We had a brilliant product developer, chocolate uh, food expert, uh, a guy called Micah Carhill, who 
has the best taste buds on the planet and is brilliant at developing a raft of food and drink and i still work with with him today uh, on other ventures and we felt that we had great tasting chocolate when people tried it we had a really good backstory but a backstory around organic and ethical that perhaps was a little ahead of its time mm-hmm. and when you said to people this is organic chocolate and it's it's paying it's a fair trade premium for the for the c- cacao growers a, a lot of chocolate lovers found that story to be honest, a bit incompatible with good quality taste. They sus- mm-hmm. they were suspicious around the quality of the taste. So this is sort of ethical. This is charity chocolate. It's doing good, but it's not going to taste very yeah. good. So we need to change our, not change our recipes, not change our ethical standards, but change our pitch and change our presentation. We went from being sort of market leader of, global market leader of organic chocolate, which is not a very big market, mm-hmm. to being a tiny challenger brand in premium chocolate. And we, you know, I think I remember putting a post-it note up in the kitchen, which was doubled up as the boardroom at Green and Black's. <laughs> so to today we go from 99% share of organic chocolate to, you know, less than 0.000% of chocolate. Yeah. And there's a lot, lot to go for. And it changed people's mindset. We felt we had something special, but we had to introduce it to people in a more um, user-friendly way. Mm-hmm. And that started with the packaging. We worked with Pearl Fisher, um, okay. who are a well-renowned agency, Green and Black's were actually their first client when they uh, set up the brilliant? agency. Wow. And a brilliant lady there uh, called Tess Wicksteed, who uh, was their planning director, worked with me and the team to try and look at how we, we got Green and Black's to be presented in a more desirable and compelling way. Chocolate's mm-hmm. about indulgence and desire. So we wanted to be premium and luxurious, but we wanted to be ethical at the same time, not, not either or. And we changed the branding, and I think it set Green and Black's on its path, really. I mean, the... The recipes and the ethics were, were there long before I arrived um, and were highly authentic. And we kept all of that, but we added some style, I think. Mm. And it coincided with the you know, the earlier stages of you know green being quite cool yeah. rather than green just being sort of hippie health, yeah, health food yeah, shops. Yeah. So we moved the brand from some of its earlier availability and distribution in health food shops just more into places where people bought high quality chocolate including some of the supermarkets and um yeah it was a fantastic time we had um a small but great team there and uh we were doing lots of innovation i'd like to think some stylish marketing Mm -hmm. main form of marketing was was sampling and tasting we did a little bit of advertising in the in the later years when we could afford to do some of that in london but it was always secondary to the look and feel of the brand um, and then really telling the story of the brand face-to-face with by introducing it through tastings and sampling. Yeah. And what about the name? Where did that come from? Uh, came from the founders. Yeah. Uh, really mimicked the two of them. So uh, Craig Sams, who was, and his wife, Joe Fairley, uh, with founders. Craig was very much the, the green of green and blacks. He was sort of eco-warrior, the Anita Roddick of food. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had a macrobiotic restaurant in Notting Hill in the sixties. Served the Beatles and wow. had a separate brand called Whole Earth, which is peanut oh, yeah. butters. And so he was a, he was way ahead of his time um, on the natural food agenda. Mm-hmm. And his wife Joe Fairley is a well-known journalist. She writes about beauty products. She was one, the youngest ever female editor of You Magazine. Mm-hmm. So she was interested in. She was a chocoholic, and she liked she liked lovely stuff. She liked style, and she got brands. So she was the the blacks of green and blacks for stylish and indulgent, and the first recipe of green and blacks was was dark seventy percent chocolate. Okay. At a time when dark chocolate in the UK really wasn't very available, you know, Bourneville was most people's idea of dark chocolate, mm. and Bourneville has less cocoa in it than green and blacks milk chocolate to give you an idea okay. of how okay. how dark, how dark it was or wasn't. So yeah. green and blacks was. Um, yeah, gaining a following for people who like dark chocolate and many people that also baked with high cocoa chocolate. Mm-hmm. You know, and alignment to that, before the days of Great British Bake Off, but alignment to that baking scene were, were very important to the, yeah. the rise of the brand. And what about line extensions and product extensions and all that sort of stuff? Did you get involved in that as well? Yeah, we, we, we did quite a bit of that. Again, some of it was there before I arrived, but we um, we, we did more. We 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 had a drinking chocolate and cocoa powder range for the, mm-hmm. for the home baking side of cooking chocolate where the bar was designed each chunk was deliberately five grams and the inside of the wrappers had a lovely recipe on it That's so that, that was good and it was gave us extra distribution because we could sell it in the baking section of stores not just the, the eating chocolate yeah, yeah. part of the stores that was a great success that brand extension we moved into ice cream organic ice cream uh drinking chocolates and gift chocolates and we did easter eggs the first year we did Easter eggs, we um, 
it tasted great, but they all got smashed through the supply chain because they didn't have enough plastic around them because we were concerned about yeah. plastic back in the day being incompatible with an organic ethical brand. Um, but there was such love for the brand. I remember we got, um, this is before the before the real heights of social media, people used to email you nice feedback or even telephone the office. I remember we had one lady phone the office and she got put through to me and she said, oh, I'm a real, really big Green and Blacks fan. Did you, did you know that you're doing Easter eggs now? I said, well, we did actually because we've, we've produced them. And yeah, yeah. She said, well, I saw them in Waitrose. She said, just wanted to tell you they were, two of them were really smashed because uh, obviously the, they'd been dropped in the, by, in the way between the warehouse and getting them onto shelf and just thought you should know. Anyway, just don't worry about it because I bought them both for you so that it wasn't a problem. Whoa. So that's the kind of brand love we had. So customers buying our Fulton Whoa. products in order to look after our presentation. What a lovely British thing so to brilliant. do. So, ne- <laughs> so the next year we put plastic around the Easter eggs to protect them, preserve them, and then we got absolutely a deluge of unhappy customers saying, really? how dare you put plastic around the eggs. Third year attempt at Easter eggs. Sales were going up each year, by the way, but the third year we thought we can't have the plastic, take that out. And a lady in our finance department, accounts payable, mm-hmm. uh, came up with a brilliant piece of innovation, which is the way to solve this. It's not pay expensive innovation in marketing agencies, but why don't you just make the egg thicker, put more chocolates in it, then you don't need the plastic. And we were doing drop the egg tests in the office. So we had the thickest, a thicker green and black chocolate egg without any plastic, and it won all sorts of sustainability awards, and we Whoa. sold more than ever. So there you go, a consumer, a uh, real brand fan, and a brilliant lady from Accounts Payable at the, at the absolute heartbeat of our innovation strategy. Just make the it green and so, just solid. I think we won a marketing <laughs> award for that as well. <laughs> take the credit for, for some great great ideas. But it's a good example of listening to, listen to your customers and actually usually people inside the business in operations or in non-marketing function, functions have got, to be honest, have got better ideas than most of the marketing department. Yeah. I say that as a marketeer. Yeah, yeah. So actually just asking the people down the pub what they really think usually gets you some great creativity the power of a pint someone told me absolutely yeah i think it's just having that no ego or humbleness in yourself as well to just not always think you've got the right answer well there's you know there's no shortage of good ideas within most businesses um making them look great and bringing them alive with mm. a bit of style and swagger is, 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 is the hard part but yeah i sometimes don't really understand why companies spend fortunes asking the outside world for ideas mm-hmm. i think you know the ideas are always there in my, in my experience yeah um but execution's hard mm-hmm. and brilliant execution's even harder and that that's where you need the talent to, and the focus and, and the investment to be yeah. placed yeah so then what happened did you go out on your own after that i did so we'd sold green and blacks to cabri and then along the way we'd taken green and blacks to america and i was helping with that uh i'd moved from full-time to Initially three days a week and then down to an even more minor time advisory role uh, to allow me to do a few other non-competing things. Um, Craft bought Cabri, so Green and Blacks became an even smaller part of a bigger company and the time was right to sort of move on formally. So together with two colleagues from Green and Blacks, we became involved with a business called Corston Vale, which was an apple juice, local apple juice business, and we invested our time and money in that together with the original founder and evolved that business into Causton Press, which is now a range of um, soft drinks, including the original pressed apple juice range. So I uh, spent a lot of time doing that, which was yeah, almost a startup, but mm. getting getting that range right. Again, working with Pearl Fisher, uh, a lady called Clooney Brown, who is a marketeer at, um, at Green and Blacks, has done that um, work with me as well. Mm-hmm. To create the Causton Press brand, um, I got involved with Union Coffee as a consultant and um, Took on a few other clients as well along along the way, inclu- including Pret, mm-hmm. and that was um, I've been a Pret customer for years. Uh, knew some of the team at Pret as I had previously sold them Green and Black's chocolate to sell in Pret stores, so I got some connections there. And, um, and that was one of the only branded. Yeah, it was a, it was a co-branded product. Well. product. It was yeah. a big a big moment for Green and Blacks, and. Um, Stupidly, in more recent years, I wrote the policy, or was part of writing the policy that said there was no no room for branded products. I can't get anything into Pret these days. But um, <laughs> back in the day, Green and Blacks was a was a great um, yeah collab- collaboration, a, a, an exciting launch for for Green and Blacks for sure. And Pret was much smaller mm. back then, but it, it was a big brand awareness booster for for Green and Blacks in the early days to have our chocolate sold in in Pret shops. Well, there's so many people wanting to get into Pret, and they keep going on about how, why is Coca Cola in there. Why is Coca-Cola in there? And it's like, 
I mean, without Coca-Cola, it was hard, you know, you'd get a lot of feedback, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, Coke's, Coke's been in from you know, day one. Yeah. Um, Pratt's, you know, more than 30 years old now, and, Pratt, and uh, Coke's always been there. It still still sells well. There's been various experiments over the years to remove it. And customers get pretty angry when you do. So um, <laughs> it's not the only choice. There's plenty of choices within yeah, yeah. Within a pret store for drinks, um, but yeah, Coke remains because customers customers want Coke and Diet Coke. Hi, I'm Alex from Engage, and thanks for tuning in to the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Each week, we'll be bringing you a great tip to supercharge your own digital marketing, and this week's comes from Shri, our head of SEO. Once a website or piece of content is live, it's easy to forget about it and just move on to the next task. However, there's a huge benefit in making sure your site is continually performing well in organic search, so it's worthwhile giving it a quick audit from time to time. The best way to do this is by using Google's Search Console. Search Console provides a whole host of information about your site, and importantly, any issues Google is having with it. And you can be sure if Google's having issues, then your customers are too. Go to google.com forward slash webmasters to start the ball rolling, or log in if you're already set up. The first place to start is with the coverage report. Check for any pages with errors or warnings. The two most common errors we see that are worth fixing are soft 404 and redirect errors. Luckily, Google tells you exactly which pages are responsible for the warnings, how to fix them, and even allows you to export the data so you can share it easily with your web developer. If you need any help getting to grips with your own search console or getting your site at the search rankings, then head over to engageinteractive.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can see how we've helped some of the UK's most ambitious and successful hospitality brands with their own digital marketing strategies. Cheers, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, let's talk about Prep for a bit then. Um, you know, obviously we've got a bit of shared history there we as well. Indeed, yeah. I was, you know, super lucky to work with you and get, and get to know you when I was there. You know, it was a nice... A nice time. I think we had a good time. Um, you know, doing that and you helped me loads, you know, and your famous phrase always was about air cover, which you always talk about, and I think you provided that for me on a lot of occasions. Um, you know, when things were maybe getting a bit fraught or discussions were happening about the next campaign or whatnot. But what did you find when you went into Pret? So, you know, you get asked to go and advise for a bit. Yeah. What state was it in? What were you thinking? You know, what were you asked to do? Stuff like that. Well, the business the business was was doing well. Mm. Um, it had it was already in it was it was in you know a very good growth phase. Um, it had recently secured um, the backing of Bridgepoint, mm-hmm. and Clive and team were well along the path of their sort of um you know clive's initial turnaround through to growing prep was was in full swing by that point so i was fortunate to join a business already on a roll and i there was a feeling that um which makes me smile now but there was a feeling that within prep that they didn't know how to do marketing or didn't really do marketing Mm. yet to the outside world i think prep's often rightly um recognized as a leading light in yeah. marketing but inside the building the confidence was not was not that high mm-hmm. it was a feeling that the original founders kind of were, were the marketing of the brand and the, the magic dust kind of was still with them so so my job was to i guess try and um build the internal confidence in in the in the prep marketing mm-hmm. formula stre- strength strengthen the team to make it fit for purpose for future growth and um, you know, professionalise the function. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think, you know, I helped, I played a small role in helping Pratt grow, but the brand was already in great shape and there was already a well-established um, brand narrative and creative look and feel that um, I'd admired from the outside mm-hmm. and had no intentions when I joined um, to rip that formula up. Yeah. And in some ways, I remember going to my first board meeting with Bridgepoint and some of the prep founders and, and Clive and others. And I think there was an expectation, you know, the new guys in, what, what are you going to do with the prep brand? And it was quite a flat meeting, actually, because my advice was you're onto something very special here. Um, I'm not quite sure you realise how good um, it already is. Uh-huh. And what we need to do is look after it, nurture it, evolve it, keep it fresh and relevant, but um, celebrate it, really, yeah. and cherish the great marketing that's that's already here. Yeah. Maybe organise it better, and you know, kick it on a little. But um, the recommendation was not to start again or change styles. Mm. And sometimes, as a marketeer, I do, I do think your responsibility is to encourage consistency. Mm-hmm. 
and continuity and not feel under pressure to follow everything that's shiny and new and to change things. Um, but it's often a, there's an expectation, I think, on marketing and agencies to always produce completely different new things. Whereas in my experience, when brands have the right um, style of communication, uh, they benefit even more if they cumulatively um, nurture that and, and stay true to it. And I think Pret, um, Pret really grew around the world, particularly in the UK, by um, giving more love and care and attention to that um, a very stylish presentation of the brand and it's distinctive and it's, it's well and truly Pret. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I think you see... You see examples of people literally going and doing shop tours or competitive visits and they come back with a montage of, I like this bit from this brand and that yeah. bit from that and I want this from there and that. And it's a complete mess really. Mm-hmm. And the job, of, the job of the marketing and the creative team is to you know, have, have your eyes wide open, look at what's happening out there, but actually focus, focus on the prep story and deliver a prep brand, be comfortable in your own skin and um, deliver that consistently. Meanwhile, the outside world tended to admire what we were doing but sometimes resisting change is, is hard but were you not nervous though because i think i feel a pressure sometimes when i go to meetings that it is like dance monkey dance a little bit <laughs> you know people are like you know tell me something new and exciting and you know you feel underwhelmed sending them quite sage steady advice i mean did you go to the meeting going oh well or how did you feel I think there there is an expectation that you're going to produce something you know incredibly new and exciting. Mm. I, I think it's less about is it is it new and different. It's more about is it is it good? Yeah. Is, it, is it is it brilliant work? And the marketing and creative team at Pret, I look back, you know, over my four or five years there, and you know, I'm really proud of the quality of work that that they produced, and and hopefully I gave them the air cover to get most of it through. Yeah. But um, some of the work was. I look back on it, it's out of the park work. So in that sense, there was no um, lack of confidence. But occasionally you get more plaudits externally than internally. Mm. And you've got to have sort of slopey shoulders and drop the ego a bit when you're a marketeer in yeah. hospitality. But I think quietly we, we were very effective mm-hmm. and not sure people always realise what marketing departments are up to, but I think we helped the brand grow and, um, you know, retain its specialness. Well, I, I, it was quite interesting. You know, I had my... my sort of final interview I suppose but to go in and ask the qu- you know any questions you know you get kind of thing in the interview and I said um, why are you hiring a head of marketing like I almost don't understand because you don't do marketing and when I say marketing I mean promotions in any way yes. so it became quite a discipline to sit on your hands and actually focus on what that sandwich box said or you know, the obsession about the shelf label we were talking about earlier, we, we, you know, Julian's obsession on that stuff. So it was a very, very unique role within hospitality as well because 99% of other jobs is you're a promotions jockey and doing all the wrong things, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, um, you know, I try and sometimes... I remember joining Pret and being taken for lunch by one of the... Um, one of the one of the uh, non execs on the on the board who'd had a long term tenure with the company, and uh, he he said to me, "Mark, my only advice to you is is rebrand yourself in the first month. Don't call yourself the marketing director because no one here understands what marketing is. So, you know, you're call what you call yourself, but that that'd be my top tip because ah. being called the marketing director is probably going to be problematic around here. What did you call yourself? Well, I call myself the marketing director because I remain quite proud to be a marketing director. <laughs> I thought I saw it as my job to explain to all people what marketing you know, could do yeah, and yeah. the role it could play. There's obviously chief growth officers and customer yeah, officers yeah. and, you know, growing a brand and listening to the customer and doing the right thing for them are, are all important attributes of a good marketing director, but mm. I still prefer to be a marketing director personally. Yeah. I'm very proud of the marketing function and I think there's an education job to do in hospitality to um, explain to people how holistic the marketing director role is rather than just being the... Yeah, the latest sales promotion calendar, as, yeah. uh, as it can sometimes, uh, sometimes be viewed. I mean, within a business like Pret, the there is so much brilliant raw material. Yeah, I mean, you would be an idiot to go into Pret and not be able to fill books worth of ideas within a very short period of time mm-hmm. just by being inside the inside the business and looking around the amazing people stories, 
the fantastic food development that yeah. you know Claire, Caroline, and team were doing at the time. Um, move op- opening the brand into new towns and cities, and Graham, brilliant property director. It's a fantastic unsung people at Pret in all the sort of less glam functions yeah. that are just producing all this excellent content. Yeah. And the job of the marketing department is more like being editor in chief, really, of a magazine mm-hmm. and just watching what's going on and then trying to pick the best bits, work out where they sit in the communications hierarchy and tell the story yeah. to the outside world, but tell the story in a coherent way that looks beautiful, um, that's very carefully considered. So, ordering right message, right place making it all considered and then allowing the creative guys to just beautifully present it. Fantastic team. And um, the job of the team was just to tell the story of what was already happening in Pret. You know, yeah. Pret Foundation Trust, what a fantastic organisation that is and the people mm-hmm. that are behind uh, do all the work day-to-day there and the 10,000 team members in the shop. Just all about telling the outside world the story of the inside world and making it, making it attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, not really selling, just... No. You know, we used to say attract, not sell. Yeah. It's a big, prep marketing is a charm offensive and a storytelling job, not a yeah. sales promotion job. Tell, not sell. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, going back to a lot of that, you know, just when you're saying about the stories, I remember we were sort of launching, was it like a posh McMuffin almost, where there was the breakfast muffin breakfast, thing. Breakfast brioche roll. Before that. So uh, yeah, before the, the there was the muffin. Yeah, 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 I do remember that. Yeah. And uh, I sat with Nick the soup guy who did lots more than soup but he was always yes. seen as the soup guy and honestly I must have had about 15 pages of stuff with him romantically telling me about every single it was like hand docked semolina coated you know and you just thought we need to get this out there so I think actually with a lot of the social stuff when you're saying about all the stories no disrespect at all, but I think they could do so much more on social to just tell those, you know, if you're needing to have 50, 60, 80, 100 posts a day across all your channels, I think there's so much that, you know, really could come out. But I think there is a little bit of not wanting to say too much as well. It's a balance of... Yeah, I think I mean, I think the move, the business has moved, you know, with the times yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of embracing more of that. But I would agree with you. I mean, I think social channels are the perfect absolute perfect place to tell the food stories yeah it feels um, quite producty still it's like here's a soup here's a d- 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 you know could could up, yeah. up the ante well, on, on always, different you know, axis these channels become ever more popular and um you know different opportunities arise i mean i remember doing in, in green and blacks days social media was very embryonic mm. if we were doing green and blacks now with social media it would have been a mega brand yeah there's a word of mouth brand the press of course always has the good fortune of 500 prime real estate locations mm-hmm. and i think if you're thinking about where to start in the marketing mix you know that that's what customers encounter every day so making those as brilliant as they can be yeah. is, is a good place to start i just i'm laughing i'm thinking about you sent me had a note the other month and it was like i like nice posters <laughs> that just like summed it up of you know just well, I was get, like, get the basics right well you have you to know. remember you know I, I came from a world of where you had to pay a lot of money to get um a poster on the side of a bus shelter or a TV ad. So I always thought Pret was a bit of a gift, really, and we had these free poster sites, and it was irresponsible not to turn them into beautiful artworks and entertain customers as they walk past. And can you link every poster to, you know, sales of a particular product? Mm. Not really, because the best posters are actually not really about a product. They're about a sort of time of year or a sentiment or or a mood that, Pret's an emotion that Pret's trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the brand tracking scores, there's those kind of things that make people fall in love with the brand. Yeah. And um, as you say, tell not sell, but entertain as well. And if you've got free space to do it, uh, cost of a print run of posters is you know, pretty insignificant compared to other investments that other brands have to make to take you on. Mm-hmm. And what about your proudest Pret moment? You know, what was the the campaign that was incredible or you know, something else that sort of happened? What's the one? I've got one in my mind, but I don't know. Um, I think as the food team were, they were doing some outstanding work moving Pret's menu onto even fresher, even healthier food. This was probably before the likes of Veggie Pret. Mm -hmm. Um, We started to get into the rhythm of celebrating some of the new menu items and the lighter, healthful attributes of the food. So we had... 
the first iterations of Eat Colourful with beautiful illustrations of yeah. peacocks and you know literally we were strutting our stuff you know with that and I thought it was really beautiful um, marketing materials but also coincided with actually a you know a, a winning streak from the food team yeah. in terms of great innovation and taking Pret's menu perhaps beyond not abandoning but beyond its sort of sandwich roots yeah. into you know more me- more modern lighter food so there was that we launched you know cold press green juice we were the first brand to do that that was a very blatant product ad yeah uh drink your greens is the headlines the marketing will laugh if they hear that that's my favorite ever headline partly because i put it on the brief and have claimed credit for it ever since i did they not like it uh i thought it was you know a bit like the headline that a marketing director would write rather than a creative yeah always room for a bit of route one in there uh, with a nice big pack shot, but mm. it happened to be a beautiful bottle that they designed, and the product was good. But we were, you know, first real, I guess, major chain brand to adopt that type of product, and there was concern was was green juice was way out there. You know, how can mm. we sell vegetable and juice in the in the shops? And you know, very quickly it became a top seller. But actually, I think it it sent a bigger halo um, around health and yeah. you know modernity for the brand. And uh, that underpinned a lot of the growth. So that period was good, culminated with, um, you know, Veggie Pret was exciting. Yeah. Veggie Pret was um, a rush job, if truth be told. I mean, there's probably case studies written about it now as a, a brand master. Well thought out. It was pretty, it was pretty yeah. chaotic at the time. Um, we'd had a strategy session as an exec team um, off-site with, with Clive had had with the board to try and agree our sort of top 10 priorities for the next two to three years. There were lots of good ideas from diff- opening up in different countries to yeah. prioritising, you know, great, greater um, focus on delivery and tech and all these things. And one of the ideas was, you know, more vegetarian food, celebrate vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could see in our sales mix over years that the healthier food was rising to the top even without us actively marketing it. So the customer was voting for it without much help. And... Veggie Pret or vegetarian um, actually got screened out of that strategy session because we felt that it wasn't a tier one priority yeah. for the brand. Um, however, it sort of sat there still as a good idea. Um, but we were, Pret was always trying to focus, and it was it was very well organised by by Clive and others in that sense mm-hmm. behind its big priorities. And then about a week later, he uh, picked off myself and, and Caroline, who was the food director at the time, and sort of told us that actually we were going to ignore that and it was our secret project to make that happen yep. and he realised it would cost a bit of money to do it but he got a CEO back pocket fund somewhere for special projects so the food team did some great work on it we worked on it you know, as a pop-up with quite crude marketing cheap marketing materials to get it out there did yeah. the first shop in uh, in Soho and next door to here next door to here yeah. and it was a um it's a huge success. It was great for the food team because I think they were frustrated. They'd be developing great vegetarian food and not most of it didn't find its way into main pret shops. Yeah. So it's a good way of them auditioning and testing that food, fast-tracking some innovation mm-hmm. and MPD. Um, it was a real morale booster for the business. I think people felt that Pret sort of regained its entrepreneurial streak that had made it famous in the first place. And when we did the team member survey that year, um, 10,000 plus employees of Pret. The thing that made them proudest to work for Pret that year was Veggie Pret. Yeah. So it's an example where the numbers didn't really stack up as a strategic priority. But to his credit, Clive, um, you know, he's an astute guy and he mm. found a way of having this kind of skunk works gorilla project in the background. And um, there was a lady called Abby who was in my team who was responsible for doing the signage and ticketing. And I mean, it was like doing a startup business in yeah, about four yeah. weeks. She did an incredible job. And it was only intended to be around for about um, two, two to three weeks. Veggie prep was it really? Jeez. So the story on social around we're extending it was not was not was never really planned that way. It, it, it was a genuine success, and then the pressure was to keep it open. Yeah. But of course, she she'd done it on a shoestring budget with temporary materials, um, not to the standard that most preps had had done with. And I remember coming out of a, an op board meeting where we decided to keep veggie pret open mm. and thinking god abby's going to be so proud of this because her project's really you know been given the nod to continue and she burst into tears not out of happiness but out of despair around how the hell do i keep this thing god. continuing because um yes, she'd really done it as a little uh, temporary pop-up but we found a way and uh, you know a lot of people work very hard on that 
on that project. And I think um, it's informed a lot of the development for prep food mm-hmm. since that time. Obviously, there's a, a sub-brand sort of emerging with veggie prep, but I think the bigger benefit is it's accelerated the amount of vegetarian food that's yeah. um, on sale in prep shops. And mm. as we said, you know, not just for veggies. Yes. It's about, uh, you know, it's about a sort of more inclusive approach to allow people to embrace vegetarian food without you know not needing to sort of fully convert to being a vegetarian or vegan if they choose not to yeah, a typical prep thing to say everyone's welcome from supersonic inc this is the mark mcsee supersonic marketing podcast today's podcast is also brought to you by fourth Fourth is the leading hospitality workforce, inventory and analytics provider. Fourth effectively manages your employees' journey using its integrated workforce management system. Fourth also improves your organisational efficiency by streamlining and managing all of your purchasing and inventory. And Fourth Analytics gives you instant insight to make better business decisions all from your phone, tablet or your computer. Transform your hospitality business today. Go to fourth.com now. Last couple of things then. We're just, um, what's next? So current ventures, new ventures. Yeah, so... We've not plugged Coston Press or LA Brewery enough. That's fine. <laughs> or, 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 or Union Coffee or, or, Forest, Union or, Coffee. or Forest Feast. There you go. Great natural snacking brand. That I didn't know about for. Forest Feast. So Forest Feast is a range of uh, trail mixes ah. and uh, dried fruit and nut healthy snacks uh, made in Belfast. I uh, got to know a family-owned business, got to know Michael Hall, the owner of that business. Uh, they're actually a Pret supplier. Um, been oh, is, Pret it? is that years. who does their things? But Forest Feast is the, the branded part of their, their world. So I'm a, I'm a non-exec and an investor in, the, in that business um, as well. So I have a, a trip to Belfast for a Guinness and a board meeting. Um, every month and it has a brilliant team there in Belfast and we're, we're hoping to make that brand more famous you know over here so so that's part of my life now um, Union Coffee I'm the the chairman of Union now the business is still privately owned uh, Jeremy Tours and Stephen Macatonia started it uh, 20 years ago uh, it's become a multi-channel business these days so it started out serving independent coffee shops and hotels and that's still a very big part of what we do, uh, we saw some roast coffee for some big um, hospitality and contract catering operators like uh, like Gather and Gather. Uh, we work in partnership with Gales Bakery, mm-hmm. obviously Marta there now, who is ex-Pret. They sing your well. praises often in Romy as well, yeah. If you've um, not had enough delicious food at Deshume and still fancy a coffee with a, with a, with a, <laughs> with a coffee partner for Deshume. So Union is specialty coffee um, with, a, with a direct trade promise. I first met Jeremy and Steve when I was at Green and Blacks, actually, because the right. philosophy of the brands was similar. And that business has now got um, you know, really, a really growing team. We've got a direct-to-consumer business, freshly roasted coffee that you, can, uh, that you can order today and be delivered to you tomorrow from the roastery, ground for your cafetiere or whole bean, if you prefer it that way, whatever, whatever the piece of kit you've got at home, it's, it's prepared. So... Union's a big part of my life, and I'm a, I'm a shareholder and, and, and chair of that. And uh, we're looking to how does that business grow? But again, you know, keeping tight and true to its philosophy around improving coffee, the quality of coffee we all enjoy, but in, making sure the grower also enjoys that as yeah. well. And um, you know, is getting a fair share of the share of the spoils. So Union's a big part of my time, and then the rest of my time is all spent on uh, soft drinks. So mm-hmm. Corston Press is now. Uh, you know, continuing to grow, uh, we moved. We've moved the business from being a juice business to more of a soft drinks business. Sparkling cans of drink are now um, our biggest selling lines. Uh, sparkling rhubarb is our top selling product. Again, if you do conventional consumer research, rhubarb probably wouldn't have come out yeah, as yeah, the yeah. hero product. It's a delicious. Um, it's a delicious drink, and it seems to have captured the imagination. You know, where, wherever we sell our range, it's, it's consistently the. The top seller, and we sell from sandwich shops to you know pubs, people consuming at home, uh, and it's on the menu of, of some restaurants. It's, it's even mixed with a GNT as a rhubarb GNT oh, yeah. in some places. So yeah, that's that's my baby. And then um, LA Brewery, yeah. which we started a couple of years ago. Louise Avery, who's the LA of um, of LA Brewery, uh, was a, a home producer, a home brewer of kombucha. She was making 
couple of hundred bottles a week in her kitchen and selling it at foodie and farmers markets. Uh, and we were introduced to her, myself and William, my business partner, were introduced to her. We thought her kombucha was delicious. We've been for a long time trying to solve the problem of, you know, what what do you drink when you're not drinking? And Causton Press has partly answered that, but we think there's another step beyond that really yeah. as a genuine alcohol replacement. And we think uh, LA Brewery will be that stylish non-alcoholic brand. And we've got a range in play at the moment of fermented drinks with kombucha, but we've got we've got a pipeline of innovation of um, you know really complex soft drinks that will yeah. be coming down the downstream. So that's very much a business that's it's been going a couple of years, but it's really still in very early stage startup mode. Yeah. I love the name. Um, I love when a name or a phrase or a line has that pinball effect where it does three things sort of idea. So you've got Louise, you've got the romance of Ellie as a place, and then you've got low alcohol, and I just think it's such a lovely triptych effect. If there's, there might be more, I don't know. But no, 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 no that's it. And, lovely. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and money trying to come up with a name, and we were de- designing the brand with um, with a really fantastic agency called Here Design, and mm. they, they were trying to do graphic design routes whilst also interchanging a raft of possible brand names, so it's a very complicated process. Yeah. And, you know, we were nearly the botanical brewery at one point, and then we were the sort of mother culture. There were all yeah. sorts of names there. And, mother um, culture's fun. You know, we got a little help in the end from the creative director of Pret over a pint who told us we were wasting a lot of time and why don't we just call it LA Brewery. So he uh, has happily become a shareholder as part of, Very that, good. Part of that work. But um, So it's good. It's a great brand name, I think. And the drinks are even better. Mm. You know, a, a, no, name, a nice. name gets you so far, but the, the drinks and the idea of the brand hopefully can take, can take it a long way. You shoved one into my hand uh, a little while ago at a, a conference we were at. You were exactly. in your sales mode, but it, it's delicious. You had it ever since. I, I like the, is the ginger one, right? Yeah, the yeah, ginger's, yeah, ginger's the, uh, the first one we launched, and actually it's the top seller. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a good drink for anyone that hasn't hasn't tried it so what yeah. to drink when you're not drinking that's the line isn't it absolutely that's the poster well, I, I think there are other brands have used that since we used to have that on Causton Press but it's ah. a, a well known non-alcoholic spirit that's now tried to trademark that is it oh. we did it first anyway we're all, we're all in the same <laughs> there's plenty of room for lots of brands and we're all in the same the same space really but like all things whether it's chocolate or Pret or LA Brewery or Causton you know great tasting products are, re- are really what win it's yeah. helpful if you can have a groundswell of support or a movement around them. But, you know, great tasting product, beautiful design and packaging. Big fan of that. Always think you should invest in the product and the packaging. And if you happen to have any spare time or money, then you can do a bit of other marketing along the way. But yeah. um, you've got to do it in that order. Yeah. You know, marketing is pretty ineffective, if we're honest, behind products that aren't very good. Yeah. You get people to try them once and they don't come back. So I've always been a big believer in um, every pound or penny you've got, put it into the product and the presentation. And then um, you tend to get you know, a higher level of stickiness from customers. And then marketing money from that point on, it's just inevitably more effective. Right, last couple of things then. Um, so, best city to eat in? Uh, London's pretty good, although I enjoyed mainly through Pret. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to spend about a week a month for two and a half, three years mm. going to New York. So I got to know that quite well. Um, so there's some, there some great restaurants there. I got to... Got to sample a few, um, and you know, I'm a big fan of it of, of Asian food. So there was a great uh, place called Nam on Third Avenue, which is okay. quite close to our office. I looked it up actually last night and realised it's closed. <gasps> so I was obviously their best customer when I was there. But it was a pretty, pretty sort of down to earth, grungy place, but the food was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and then Red Farm, who since opened in London, Red Farm, was a brilliant uh, high end Chinese restaurant uh-huh. in Manhattan. Um, been there once. Bridgepoint paid, so that was always good. <laughs> but, um, that, was one, of best, that was one of the best meals I've had in recently. So yeah, New, I think I think New York would score highly on on that. Best restaurant? Is there another one that you hold dear? There's, uh, I'm not sure whether I describe it as a restaurant. There's, there's a fantastic place that I love going to, which is in the Roseland Peninsula in Cornwall, called the Hidden Hut. Okay. Which is more of a kiosk um, that is set just back from the beach that do around three menu items. The menu changes every day literally served from this temporary hut and the food is just stunning served in just a cardboard pot that you can take back and eat on the beach um, beautiful curries and chowders and okay. so as a takeaway concept with a few mm-hmm. picnic benches outside but i actually would honestly tell you that's some of the best food i've eaten in the last few years 
Um, even managed to get a Causton Press listing. Really good. <laughs> so, but that is a yeah. But I, I, I tend to like unfussy places, but with good food. I like the Harwood Arms in Fulham. Yes, that's a regular place for birthdays and celebrations. We live quite close to that, so that's um, relaxed atmosphere. But it's just all about good ingredients done well. Um, so, big fan of that. Is there a best dish? What's your go-to dish? Usually something involving duck. Oh really? Huh. Yeah, big fan of big fan of duck, bit of crispy duck. Very good in various forms. Um, drink. Um, well, obviously, aside from personal interests, I think the. <laughs> you know, I like I, I like lots of drinks. Um, I I like a good pint, uh-huh. and I the best pint I've had recently was, that, was actually back at home um, before a Wolves game. Right. Which was um, a, a Banks's Blondale. Mm-hmm. Carscale, which is um, called Banks's Sunbeam, which is actually a tribute to the motorcycle factory production that was in, oh, in the yeah. city back in the 1930s. So it started as a limited edition a few years ago and has, has now become a sort of permanent item. But I grew up around the corner from um, Banks's Brewery. Uh-huh. I can still smell it right now. Yeah. So that's my kind of home pint. Um, and I guess these days I kind of I live very close to London Pride. So I'm I still, I still a fan of, still a fan of re- regional beer more than craft beer. Yeah. I'm still slightly confused what the difference is in a craft beer and a regional beer i think some of the quality yeah. some of the quality standards and consistency of the really good long-standing regional brewers mm. uh, whether it's adnams or banks's you know the quality of some of the beers is, is outstanding if you get a london pride in a fuller's pub it's usually to die for isn't it absolutely classic, yeah, it's good duke's, duke's, head, duke's head at putney good pint of, good yeah, pint yeah, of london yeah. pride nice and then you know if you look back on well, we're not both done yet, but, you know, legacy and looking back on your career and, you know, you've got to be proud of the CV and the differences you've made and it's quite incredible. Well, I'm lucky to work on some great brands and as my first boss told me a few weeks ago, the older you get, the better you used to be. So I think we're, <laughs> we're sort of in, in danger of talking about our past successes. So I, I probably need to, the next chapter needs to be... Um, on the new stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to involve... I do a bit of consultancy work with some brands, do some work with Honest and, and Active, their um, their private equity backer. But I think my, I will I will look upon the next sort of five ten years of trying to you know continue to nurture certainly you know Union LA and Causton as um, as my day job. Yeah, great. Well, Mark, it's been amazing to see you and amazing to spend time with you. And likewise, thanks very much for. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Normally, you at least get a pint when you have to listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm the worst listener as well. You know what I'm like. I'm just butting every two minutes. So yeah, it was just great to hear all, a lot of stuff I didn't know, and um, I just hope you know a lot of folk get some real value out of it. I'm sure they did. So thanks very thank much. Thank you Mark. so all much. Right, great to see, see you. you soon. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much to our headline partners, Engage Interactive from Leeds. They, to me, are the best web agency around. I've launched a couple of very successful projects with them and they're really worth talking to if you need anything doing from the social side, website, SEO, PPC, CRM, apps. They're really the guys to talk to. Working with amazing brands like Arc Inspirations, Taylor's, Yorkshire Tea, all different things. So definitely try and talk to Engage if you can. Huge thanks also to our premium partner, BDO, who've supported us all the way since Series 1. If you've got any accounting queries, mergers and acquisitions advice, growth of your business advice, do give them a call. Thanks also to you for listening, sharing, rating and reviewing as usual. Really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who's stuck with us since Series 1 and is continuing to spread the good word about Series 2. Thanks to Gaz and Gabby for all of their hard work in putting the podcast together. I know it's a rush most weeks, but I really, really appreciate all that you're doing. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to check me out and check out the podcast. I really hope that this episode, more than ever, has helped you gain some real value and insight that will help your brand boom. Boom.